Welcome to Mile High Magazine. Mile High Magazine takes a look at the issues and people shaping events in Colorado. Presented by the Public Affairs Department of Bonneville, Denver. Here's your host, Murphy Houston. It's another edition of Mile High Magazine, and I am Murphy Houston. Welcome in. Very excited today about our little discussion we're going to have with a fellow by the name of Marshall Fogel who's probably the best baseball memorabilia collector in all the world. Local guy from Denver, went to East High School, went to a CU, went to DU to become a lawyer, and he's a baseball fanatic. Did I get that right, Marshall? Right on. I don't know if I'm the one in the world, but I hope I'm close to being oh, the best oh, in the world. But be. thank you for the compliment. Well, you are from all I have read, and Marshall is responsible for a great exhibit in honor of the Rockies' 25th anniversary that's going on all summer down at the History Colorado Center. It's called Play Ball. Did I get that right, Marshall? Right on. Spot on. Right it's on. a great exhibit. So when and how did you get started? I'm sure you've been asked that question a thousand times, but starting with baseball memorabilia, and I have a fair amount, not what you have, but it's... An exciting thing. Well, I've always loved baseball. I tried to play the game. I wasn't as good as I wanted to be. But, you know, as a kid, like a lot of uh, kids, you collect baseball cards. And then I put it away as I got older. In 1989, I went to Chicago to a national sports convention. And there is the spot that I decided to be an addict and start collecting <laughs> uh, baseball memorabilia and uh, baseball cards. So uh, it grew into from a hobby to uh, where it is today, and I'm very glad that I can share it with the public at the Colorado History Museum on 1200 Broadway. Yeah, it is. It's a great exhibit. It'll be there all summer. In fact, I'm anxious to see it myself. I have not yet seen it. But what was your, what was your first piece? What did you get? That I mean, besides baseball cards, what was that piece? Mickey Mantle. Unfortunately, I wanted to look like him, but I never could get that far. <laughs> but you know, he was uh, he was my hero even as a kid. I talked. I met Mantle and, and had drinks with him in New Jersey, and and I talked to. Uh, 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 Ralph Terry, you know, he won sure. the MVP sure. in 1962. He'd been into my house with Don Larson and uh, Ryan Dern and a bunch of other Yankees. And um, uh, uh, Ryan Dern told me, and so did Ralph Terry, that when when Mantle was in the locker room, you couldn't take your eyes off of him when he took his shirt off because he was such a powerfully built guy, and uh, everybody loved him. So the first piece you got was a Mantle... 1953 Mickey Mantle baseball card. That's really? my first piece. Yeah, and don't you must have a jersey or a bat by now of Mantle. Oh, I got a great story on that. You know, uh, Mickey Mantle had a restaurant right next to the Plaza Hotel in New York, across from Central Park. Right. And the minute you walked into that restaurant, there encased was Mickey Mantle's uniform and shirt and pants from 1968, wow. which is a year, of course, to all the records he set. Were, were put in solid stone. Yes. So I called the owner. I said, I'd like to buy that uniform from you. He said, how much? I told him, and I bought it, and now it's in the Colorado History Museum for all my uh, public friends to go and see. Well, that, that just put the hair up on the back of my neck, <laughs> just thinking about Mickey Mantle's jersey in there, because I just, I, I just love it. So... How did you, did people come to you eventually and say, I've got something you may want to have? Or did you just, how did you find all these pieces? You well, asked? that's a real interesting question. And I think the people that are listening will really, really enjoy what I'm going to say. You know, when I first started, it was a hobby. And you, there was a trade newspaper. That was it. Yeah. And once you got it, the newspaper, you would call the dealer. And then pretty soon people knew that I, what I was interested in, and they would call me. And so it was pretty uh, routine uh, until the Internet hit. And oh. now we have a lot of great auctions, houses, and um, so it's much easier to find what you're looking for. And, you know, one of the things I've learned for all the people that collect out there is don't collect vertically, you know. Don't collect all Brooklyn Dodgers or all Colorado Rockies. Skim the top. Get bats, get cards, get uniforms, uh, and get the best. It's better to buy one real good item right. than a bunch of stuff that's not worth anything. That's really good advice. Thank real, you. It really is good advice. And a couple of pieces I have are that way. And I think, ah, maybe I'm a little smarter than I think. Well, <laughs> when I get to see your collection, it will take more than two minutes. Well, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> now, that's funny, <laughs> but true. It won't take more than two minutes. Jeez. So what's the hardest piece you've ever obtained? The hardest? Yeah. I mean, you talk about the Mickey Mantle jersey, but something you had to have and you just quit. Is it a Babe Ruth piece or something at that level? Oh, you're going to love this story. Oh, I love it already. Lou Gehrig. Oh. Let me tell you about my Lou Gehrig enterprise of how hard it was to get what this piece is all about. You know, Lou Gehrig had uh, what we call ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. And uh, he lived in New Rochelle, New York. And it was interesting because when he got sick, the Yankees wouldn't give him a job. And what happened was he got a job because Maryland... LaGuardia, I can never pronounce his first name. Mayor LaGuardia. Yeah. yeah. He called him up and said, I'm going to make you a parole officer, and you're going you're gonna to talk to these young people and get them straight. And Garrick took the job, and one of the, the uh, kids that he monitored who loved Lou Garrick became middleweight champion of the world, Rocky Graziano. Oh, my god! Isn't gosh. that a great story? That's a great story. So when Garrick... Uh, went to the Mayo Clinic, and they found out that he was terminally ill. Uh, They didn't want to tell. So he's on the train back with his wife, and uh, she knew that he could figure it out. And when they got to the train station at Penn Station in New York, all the kids were waiting for him. And uh, it would bring a tear to your eye to read that story. And what happened was, as he knew he was fading away, he had his last bat in his house, and he gave it to a kid called Jerry. And on the bat, it's inscribed to Jerry, may you take better advantage of this than I did. And he signed it, Lou Gehrig, and I own that bat now. Oh, my God. I love these stories. Marshall Fogel. Now, this guy's got his baseball collection. It's down at the History Colorado Center downtown in honor of the Rockies' 25th anniversary. It's called Play Ball. And, I mean, how many pieces do you think you have? More than I can count, but you know what would be interesting? Can I tell uh, your uh, fans what's at the museum? Sure, do it. Well, let's start with the fact that when you walk in the museum, there's a case of all kinds of baseball bats. Joe Jackson... Stan Musial, Mickey Mantle, Ty Cobb, uh, uh, Raleigh Fingers, uh, Schmidt. It goes on and on and on. All the Hall of Famers that you can really appreciate seeing. I have uh, Larry Walker's All-Star jersey down there and Vinny Castilla and uh, Mark McGuire's All-Star jersey when he was in Denver the year he he hit 70 home runs. That jersey's down there as well. Roberto Clemente's glove. Lou Gehrig's bat. Um, Lou Gehrig's MVP award in 1936. Joe DiMaggio's uniform that he wore in the World Series uh, when he hit his last home run against the New York Giants. Um, So also, what's going to be fun for everybody, when you walk in, under glass is Babe Ruth's handprint. Oh. And you can put your hand on that and shake hands with Babe Ruth. I always call it, when you go to that museum and take that elevator, it's an elevator to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's certainly an elevator to our history, American history, a big part of history. Don't you agree? Yeah, I do. And and. Why is baseball so important to to all of us? You know, it's a baseball field is like a church. Everything is perfect. You notice that? Yeah. The grass, the the scoreboard, the fans. You bring your kid. It's summertime. Oh yeah. You know what's really great? It's the it's the singular hero. It's the only sport where you're the singular hero. You're up at the plate. And the pitcher is 60 feet, 6 inches away. When he throws that ball at over 90 miles an hour, he gets the plate in 02 seconds. How do you hit that ball? Well, they say, it, isn't that the hardest thing to do in sports, put a round bat on a round ball at 90 miles an hour? You know, it is. And what's interesting is everybody cheers and makes a lot of noise when you're trying to concentrate hitting that ball. But when you play golf, you have to be quiet, but the ball sits on a tee. I never figured it out. <laughs> that's, that's an interesting thought. So, and part of the celebration, obviously, is the 25th anniversary of the Rockies. And maybe talk more about your Rockies pieces. So don't you have something from Don Baylor that's pretty special down there? At the I sure do. You know, when they... 
were building the stadium. And it was maybe a month, month and a half away from the opening. I went down to the stadium to meet Don Baylor at uh, a request of one of the media stations. And I brought the Don Larson no-hit ball, which I'm going to tell you about if you want to know. But we held that ball in center field in the where the bleachers are. And we talked about this ball, the no-hit ball from the World Series in 1956, uh, to bring good luck to the Rockies. And uh, it was a lot of fun. And Baylor got a big kick out of doing it with me. Well, and, and if people don't know, he was our first manager for the Rockies uh, many years ago and a darn good manager and a good guy because I had a chance to meet him once. He was really a nice person. Do you know he holds a record for being hit by more pitch balls than anybody? Only Marshall Fogel would know, <laughs> know that statistic. I did not know that. That's quite an honor to have, I guess, if you want that one. But all this collection over the years... I, I, I got to ask you, how do you afford that? I mean, it's got to be an astronomical investment, Marshall. There's a secret. So, a secret you're yeah. not sharing, I suppose. I am going to share the secret because I'm afraid of you. <laughs> <laughs> oh my so, gosh. Would you like to hear the yes, secret? Yes, yes, tell okay. me. When you're a collector, no matter what you collect, comic books, baseball, paintings, furniture, whatever it may well be, Stay ahead of the game. And what that means is that before anybody catches on, I started collecting baseball bats. Before anybody catch, started catching on, I started collecting uh, uniforms. So it's cheaper that way. Um, That's a really good point. Uh, so don't wait. It's, it's like the stock market. Buy, buy the stock before it gets hot. There's always a risk, but I always had faith in the fact that someday – uh, what I'm doing will be uh, museum pieces. And sure, it's turned out that way when I ex- have this wonderful exhibit at the Colorado History Museum and I have uh, items at the Yankee Stadium uh, with, now, with the fact that the new stadium has a museum as well. Yeah, they didn't have one at the old Yankee Stadium, did they? No. Because I was at the old Yankee Stadium. I thought, oh, this will be cool. I'm gonna... They got those plaques out in center field they had with the players, but nothing like what you must have at the new Yankee Stadium. Well... Uh, I made them give me back a lot of good items so that my friends and the public at, here in Colorado can see some really great stuff. Would you just like to see all that just stay permanently down there at the uh, History Museum? Just stay there. Never come back. Just leave it there. Well, if you write the check, I, <laughs> I promise you, I'll give you a pass. You don't have to pay $12 to go see it. <laughs> Which is a reasonable price. and and. and You've probably been down there and you've seen the families come in. Isn't it exciting for you to see the faces of the young kids that are baseball little leaguers? Are they going to be baseball players? To, oh, there's your phone now. We'll Let just me turn, turn that off. Yeah, just turn that I'm off. I'm sorry about that. Probably somebody hearing us talking and wants a piece of your action. <laughs> probably. But to see the kids, the excitement of those kids in awe of seeing Mickey Mantle's uniform and guys they've heard their dads talk about. Well, it is exciting, you know, and... and uh, I always like to talk to people about the game. Think about it. Uh, DiMaggio, the Yankee Clipper, Babe Ruth, Bam Bam, the Sultan of Swat, Dizzy and Dean and his brother. How would you like to be the mother of, of, of the Dean brothers? Daffy and Dizzy. Would you ever name your kids <laughs> Daffy or Dizzy or your friend no. Yogi Berra? Uh, once Yogi Bear was talking to another player, and he, the player said, you know, I got a hit off of Sandy Colfax. You know what Bear said? What? You're lying. <laughs> <laughs> the other story is Bear is at the White House when Reagan was the president, and there was a, a line, you know, where you meet the president and his wife. And Nancy Reagan said to Yogi Bear, because it was a hot day sure. in Washington, you know, Yogi, it's really hot, but you don't look hot at all. And Yogi said, you don't look so hot yourself. <laughs> <laughs> you could go on and on with Yogi Bear quotes, couldn't you? Oh, yeah. Do you, you meet him? I, I have uh, seen him many times. I never uh, had the chance uh, to meet him, but um, I have met uh, um, Mays and and. Uh, say hey kid and and hammer and hank aaron raleigh fingers bob gibson um you know it's just sandy colfax and everybody that i talk to in baseball 
that said that Colfax was the best pitcher they ever faced. You know what they used to call him? Khufu. Khufu? It's like when you go down to the museum, you'll see his glove, and on, on right on the the area between the thumb and the first finger, it'll say Khufu. That was his nickname. And where did that come from? Colfax. Colfax. Khufu. Well, nicknames were big, I guess, back then. I got great Colfax story if you want to hear sure, it. Sure, give it. Everybody knows Sandy Colfax. There's a player named Tom Candiotti who yep. played for the uh, L.A. Dodgers, and he's a good friend of mine, and he, in fact, collected baseball cards. That's how I met him. And uh, right. he, what saved his career is is he learned to use the knuckleball as his pitch. And, uh, you know, if you're in the major leagues as a pitcher and you win 150 games in your career, that's pretty good. Really good. That's very good. And he did. And uh, so he's, I said, he said, let me tell you about Sandy Colfax, Marshall. I said, go ahead. He said, you know, in spring training, early in the morning, there's a lot of mist in the air. and It's right, very right. cloudy. And we all wondered if Colfax is going to show up because he's such an icon to all of us as players. And out of the mist comes Colfax. Oh. You think that this was an apostle coming from heaven. <laughs> he said, and you know, he's a handsome guy and he'd come and he'd show us, you know, well, maybe if you turn your wrist a certain way, because he understood the physics of the game, put your foot this way. Everything Colfax just told the players, Candiotti expressed, it worked. And then when he'd say goodbye early in the morning, a few days later, he'd walk into the mist the- and be gone like Field of Dreams. Like I was going to say, it's just like Field of Dreams walking is, into the cornfield. Do you think is that a great story? That's a really good story. I had the opportunity to meet and play golf, believe it or not, with Bob Feller, and he was always bragging about the no hitter he threw at Old Yankee Stadium against those great Yankee players. Is, uh-huh. is that that true? Well, I met him. You know, he used to go around in a, like an ice cream truck. Bob Feller? Yeah. yeah. It's a little crazy at the end of his life, but he would go to baseball card stores, walk in, and, and tell them, I'll sign baseballs for $3 a, a baseball. Um, so um, the, he's uh, an animated guy from Iowa. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, he pitched in the major leagues like Joe Knoxall for the Reds. I think he was 15, 16 years old at the time Yeah, uh, for a little bit. Can I tell you a Don Larson story? Oh, please do. So when you go down to the museum, you'll see that the ball says the perfect game on there. An artist put it on there. World Series 1956 on the other panel, signed by Sal Magley and Don Larson. So how did I get that ball? How did you get that ball? And how did... I get together with Don Larson at my house and take a picture of me, Larson, and the ball. So what happened is there was a fellow that worked for the New York Post. He was a reporter. He talked like this from New York. (laughs) And he said, Marshall, I'm going to sell you the ball. So let me tell you how I got it. After the game, I went up to that cheap guy, Frank Corsetti, the trainer for the New York Yankees. He said, hey, Frankie. Give me the ball because I want to get it signed by Larson and Magley. Get it for my son, Johnny. Of course, said he said, I'm not giving you the balls. He had a bunch of balls in a sack. Yeah. Because we got to use them for practice the next day. Oh, my gosh. So, so the reporter says, I'll tell you what. Open the bag and give me the ball that I pick out. He <laughs> put his hand in the bag and pulled out the ball. He said, I bet that's the last pitch of the game, isn't it? Yeah. And Chris said, he said, get out of here. <laughs> so he went and got Larson to sign the ball. Of course, they called Magley the barber because when he threw a ball under your neck, you knew that he <laughs> was, you were getting a shave. Close shave. <laughs> and he uh, uh, got Magley to sign the ball and went to the art department of the New York Post and had all that stuff written on it that I just expressed to you. And he, when he was at my house, I asked him, how... Did you throw a no-hitter in the World Series? And Don said, well, you know, he lives in Idaho now. Yeah. He said, well, I, I got soused the night before because I wasn't going to supposed to pitch. He said, I had a hangover like you wouldn't believe. I'm sitting in the dugout. I think it was uh, game five of the World Series, 1956, and the old professor Stangle. Oh, here he comes. The old <laughs> professor. Larson, you're pitching. And he's hung over now. He said, I I couldn't believe it. I was seeing double. (laughs) (laughs) 
So he gets on the mound, and of course, it's always disputed. Dale Mitchell was the last player in the ninth inning to to for Larson to pitch to. And if you look at the film, it kind of looks like maybe the the called strike was really a ball, but that umpire wasn't going to let Larson not have that little oh, hitter. Absolutely. So I, he said, well, when Barry ran out and jumped on me, I thought I was going to fall over. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. So down at the museum, this play ball exhibit that Marshall Fogle has gotten all this memorabilia for you and your family to take in runs throughout the entire summer in honor of the Rockies' 25th anniversary, but in honor of baseball, which is such a big part of Americana. What other things from the Rockies? You mentioned uh, – a couple of pieces, Don Baylor Ball and some things like that. What else do you have down there? Well, we have uh, Tom, uh, uh, Helton's bat, oh. a game-use bat that's uh, encased. And not part of my collection, but it's the silver shovel that they used to break the ground and the champagne bottles that they used to celebrate the opening of the game. Um, and uh, they also um, have something from the old Denver Bears. Have you ever heard of the strike zone uniform? No. Well, when there was a manager of the Bears back in the fifties named Andy Cohen, okay, and he he played second base for the New York Giants. He was uh, a, they, a boy wonder for a season and a half, and they they got rid of him. But he's a heck of a good manager for the Bears. So there's a uniform down there where the shoulders are blue, the center of the uniform is is cream colored, and the bottom of the pants are blue representing the strike zone. No kidding. <laughs> so the players could tell when the pitch came if it was in the strike zone. What a great story. So the umpires caught on. Oh. And they get that uniform out of here. <laughs> and they banned the uniform. But that uniform, I have it, and it's down there at the museum oh, as my. part of our Denver heritage, uh, along with the wonderful uniforms I mentioned uh, about the Colorado Rockies, Hilton Spat, Walker's uniform, and, and Castilla's uniform. Um, and we also have Derek Jeter's uniform in bat down there as well. Oh, there's a ball player. Yep. Anything from the uh, Denver Zephyrs? We have a, a helmet, and we also have a, 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 dev- a metal uh, screen with a hole in it that looks like a baseball card. So you can take your children and yourself down there and pose, take a picture, and it'll look like a baseball card. That is really cool. I'll have to do that with my grandsons when I get down oh, there. You'd, he'll love it. Oh, my gosh. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, Marshall. We've got a little time left here. Any other great stories you can share about the memorabilia you've got? That's better than the memorabilia, hearing how you got the stuff. Well, you know, when you don't have anybody to talk to, you you talk to yourself about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but the, what what a collection. I mean, uh, what, what are your plans? What would you like to see happen to your collection? Your collection's got to be better than the Hall of Fame. Oh, I can't say that, you know, because uh, they've been around a long time. You know the hall. Do you know why the Hall of Fame is located in Cooperstown? I do not. Well, um, back in the early 1900s, they formed what's called the Mills Commission because the English claimed they invented baseball. Is that so? And they, and of course, the Americans that they couldn't handle that. No. So no. the Mills Commission was formed to find out the origin of baseball in the United States. And there's a book written on it, but a lot of it's just about other kinds of things about the game. And the English claim that it's a child's game called rounders. Oh. And so it turns out the Mills Commission couldn't figure it out until a man from Colorado named Graves wrote and said, I was with Abner Doubleday back in the uh, before the Civil War. The, and who Doubleday became a general, and we were in Cooperstown, New York, and I was there when he invented the game of baseball. So the people at the Mills Commission will prove it, and they said, "Well, I got the ball," <laughs> and he said, "Well, send it to us. We win. We win." Well, it turns out that Graves was insane, <laughs> <laughs> and and murdered somebody, and went to the, the state. Institution for the mentally ill, so that didn't work out too well. Not well at all. But the truth of the matter is, uh, Cooperstown had nothing to do with it. Abner Doubleday had nothing to do with it. And really, the game came from an English child's game called Rounders. So that's true. It is true. But we take full credit for it, of course. Well, but we really polished the the apple, so to speak, because, uh, you know, uh, for a later time, we can talk about 
how baseball um, emerged the way it looks today. But I want to thank you for having me here. And I hope all the people that are listening will take their family down to the museum. And I promise you, it will be an elevator to heaven. Thank you. Oh, it is. Well, we're not done yet, Marshall. I got a couple more questions. Okay. First of all, what would you like to see happen to this collection? Do you have family members that are going to take it? Or are you going to just give it away? Well, my hope is that some well-to-do group or individuals will uh, buy the collection and and take a tax write-off, donate it to the Colorado History Museum, so it'll remain in in this wonderful town of Denver as Cooperstown of the West. Oh, I love that idea. You know, I'd like to be on the commission to help make that happen someday. I told you, write the check when we first started. (laughs) (laughs) Crazy, man. So I'm just curious, too. Do you have any other sports collections? Do you are you into anything else besides baseball? Well, I have John Elway's jersey. Uh, I have uh, Patrick Waugh's All Star jersey. Wow! I have uh, Bobby Orr's uh, uh, stick and uh, Mario Lemieux and so on and uh, Gordy Howe. So I got a little. I have Muhammad Ali's fight gloves when he fought Brian Lennon for the world championship. Uh, Sugar Ray Leonard, uh, Jack Dempsey. Wow, that's quite a collection besides baseball. The Dream Team signed basketball. Holy cow. I even have a picture of you now. (laughs) (laughs) An ugly one in your mind. I'm sure that's exactly what it is. I got to tell you, the only real piece I think is worth something in my collection, back in 1959, I was nine years old, my grandmother gave me a baseball. Her One of her best friends was Ray Barris, the coach of the White Sox that won the World Series in 59, and it's signed authentically by all those guys. Good. And that's in my collection. You, you got Louis Aparicio on there and Nellie Fox and the whole whole bunch of them. And that's my one main piece. Well, Nellie Fox could chew tobacco like nobody else. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I got a picture of him that my daughter gave me in a newspaper with his wife, and, it, and there's a big gob. Got right. something in the side of his mouth, but it's fantastic. It it, it really is. Well, it's enjoyed. Well, it is, and it's and it's so important. I mean, baseball's meant a lot to this town, don't you think? Having the Rockies here, oh, it's got a great history. In fact, uh, 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 there's some uh, people that have written about baseball in Denver. Um, for instance, you know where um, Colfax and um, Broadway is located? Sure. Well, that was a baseball field. Back in the day, and um, down uh, on uh, 6th and Broadway was a, a baseball field, and uh, you know the game, uh, the name's Tinker to Evers to Chance. Well, Tinker from the Cubs played here in Denver as well. And then Merchants Park was down where the Design Center is, and sure. Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig would come there as Beston, Babes, and Larrap and Lou to play uh, the game of baseball here in the 20s. I'll bet that just drew crowds and have those guys here. There's nothing like when Ruth would come to town. Um, you know, one thing about baseball, um, one of the Ruth stories is when uh, the president of the United States was Coolidge, and the reporter said to Ruth, you know, you make more money than the president of the United States. How can that be? He said, I'm having a better year. <laughs> and can I end with a Mantle story? No, please do. 1956, Mantle wins the Triple Crown. He goes to the general manager, Weiss. He says, I want a pay raise. And George Weiss says, you're not getting one. I just won the MVP award. He said, well, you know what? I'm thinking of cutting your salary because you won't have another year like that. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I want, what was Mandel's response to that, I wonder? I, I wasn't there to hear what he said. <laughs> Well, we've been talking with Marshall Fogel, local gentleman who's got the best baseball collection, as I said earlier in the conversation we're having, probably in the world. And most of it is on exhibit down at the History Colorado Center downtown. It's called Play Ball. It's going to be there all summer, right, Marshall? It's all summer. Right. Starting April 6th of this year, it'll be there for nine months. Now that school is out and you're looking for something to do with the kids, it's real Denver historic. You you want to take this in and take the family down there, enjoy it. Marshall, thanks for coming and spending time with me today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me to be your guest. I could uh, do stories with you for a long time. (laughs) Maybe we should have a beer sometime and do more baseball for sure. And thank you guys for listening to Mile High Magazine. We certainly appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday, and we'll, we'll talk to you next week. 
we continue with Mile High Magazine. Here's your host, Adam Morgan. It's called CarFit. It's a program for older adults that reveals just how well their car fits them. It goes way beyond our traditional, well, hop in, adjust the seat, and should you see well enough above the steering wheel, eh, no problem. You can fit in the car. What we do when we purchase the vehicle in the first place? Well, this CarFit program provides insight and information through the adjustments to enhance the safety for older drivers. Greetings again. I'm Adam Morgan. The CarFit program for older adults is done to ensure their cars are adjusted to these drivers properly to increase driver safety. The fitting is free. I said that again. Free and takes only 20 minutes. When coupled with the Road Reaching Older Adults program from the Colorado Department of Transportation, they form a solid assistance combination to help older drivers drive safer and longer. On this edition, we continue exploring the car fit and road programs with Sylvia Cordy of Road and Ray Erickson of Porter Hospital, who performs car fit checkups. Prior to working at uh, Porter, where I work today, I worked at Spalding Hospital in, in Aurora, and my job was a driver rehab specialist. And so I was evaluating people, either senior drivers or drivers with uh, spinal cord injuries or brain injuries. Yeah. Did that for about uh, about nine years. And um, so it was, it was up to me. The doctor would send a prescription or referral to me, and I would take the people out, uh, or I would start with the office testing, looking at vision and reaction time, things like that. Sure. And then I would take people out on the road for about an hour and a half to two hours, and we would drive an through. An hour and a half to two hours? Right. And we would drive all, all through Aurora. types of situations then. Everything. So you could see how they were, were responding. Highway driving, mountain driving, uh, city driving, a lot of different uh, situations throughout the whole Denver area. I would um, I would check check out people very thoroughly for their driving safety. Mm-hmm. So, And then if I felt like they were safe, I would write a report to the doctor and then recommend, yes, still continues to be a safe driver, or maybe now it's time to hang up the keys. And, and that's when I would start educating them on alternative uh, transportation resources. Okay. It, again, we're back to hanging up the keys. And Sylvia, you talked about the caregivers being there to make sure that, that the keys get hung up at the right time. Mm-hmm. However, 50% of Denver is single. 50% of boomers mm-hmm. of aging are single. There may not be anybody there to tell them to hang up the keys. Yeah. What do you say to them to put that in their thinking that at some point to keep themselves evaluated so they can continue to drive safely? Well, as Ray said earlier, we need to plan for driving retirement. Just like we plan for anything else, for financials, when we are getting older, we need to plan. We need to put a plan in place now to identify those people who can help us make those decisions later on. And so there are health officials available, our doctors. It may not be someone who is uh, uh, a relative. It may be a good friend or your church member. But start identifying these people because as we age, we are going to have to face giving giving up our driving privileges. And one of the things I also was reading about, I guess AAA has a, a model older driving planning agreement. I think that uh, Dr. Emmy Betts at uh, University of Colorado Hospital, uh, she's a professor and also a um, a researcher in uh, driving safety, Yeah, uh, that she has uh, uh, contributed to that as well. And she – and uh, I think statistically what they say is that uh, senior drivers, for guys, it's going to be seven years that you might continue to drive where you're not going to be safe. For Mm -hmm. ladies, it's going to be about 10 years. And so – uh, planning for and wait a minute, wait a minute. Seven years for guys, ten years for women. Mm-hmm. Why? Because they're driving slower. The, a good question. I'm not sure if the research has gone that far to figure out why that is, but biased, <laughs> possibly. <laughs> but no, the um, um, I think the the, the take home message from that is that um, that there will be a period of time where we still want to drive, but we shouldn't be driving because we we may not be as safe. We're going to take a few more chances or we're going to be unaware of our, of our changing skills and we need sure. to stop driving. So, mm-hmm. Let me ask you real quick, uh, spend some time on CarFit. How mm-hmm. does CarFit work? They say it only takes 20 minutes, but what do you look at when you're doing a, a CarFit that uh, uh, people really need to go and see because they're thinking, oh, they're going to throw me out of the car if I go there and see it. But uh, so what kind of process is there? Is that that we're talking about? Uh, it is designed by the um, AAA, um, AARP, uh, American Occupational Therapy Association, along with 
um, support from the MIT Age Lab and um, the Hartford Insurance. And they have designed a program, about 20 minutes, where the occupational therapist, myself, would be at the very end. But along the way, you have volunteers who are checking you in. There are a group of volunteers uh, trained by uh, by CarFit uh, for, as CarFit technicians. They're checking you through, and then at the checkout, um, you know, go over the results of the evaluation. We're looking to make sure that you are uh, sitting properly in your car, that you're not too close to the airbag, that your mirrors are in the right position. So you okay, have when a- you're talking about sitting sitting in the right position, they're not too close to the airbag. Most people adjust their seat according to their steering wheel. Right. Making sure the angle of the wheel is proper so that you have good clearance over. You can see the full driving environment. Uh, You want to be about 10 inches away from that airbag so that when it does deploy that it's not going to, you know, hit you in the chest or certainly never in the face. Okay. If you're 10 inches away but you may be uncomfortable for for steering the vehicle, how do you reconcile that one? Well, there are adaptations that you can include uh, uh-huh. that are included in the car fit um, goodie box, so to speak, where yeah. you might have cushions that can help you be a little more forward or a little higher, that okay. sort of thing. Uh, then if it's still difficult for you, let's say, to adjust your mirror, uh, you know, we'll show you those electronic um, ad- adaptations or things that you can use to help you adjust your mirror more easily for you. Uh, there are all sorts of things that you can get from either local um, auto shops or sure. – um, oh, um, you know, other businesses that carry adaptations, uh, seatbelt pullers. There are steering knob assists that can help you turn uh, your steering wheel. There's there are devices that can help you get in and out of your car more easily. There's, you said seatbelt pullers because some seatbelts are too loose. They're actually too tight, and people have limited range of motion, so they cannot reach oh, behind them and okay. pull them around. Yeah. Yeah. And so this yeah. just extends the distance of the um, of the grip. And also, there are times when uh, you need a little more room, so there are also seatbelt extenders, so that the person, if they have a bit of a tummy like me, they can <laughs> they can uh, um, uh, put it still put it around them. So, mm-hmm. um, and you also look at vehicle controls. Now they've been driving the car for a while; they should know where everything is. Not necessarily, especially new vehicles. I mean, um, the uh, dealership. Uh, Tries to do a great job of showing you where everything is, but you know maybe you forget about where that uh, that horn button is or where the uh, emergency flashers are. Sure. Uh, so that sort of thing, where the wiper controls are, if you need to go from you know standard to a high speed, uh, that sort of thing. And then you know with newer newer electronics too. I mean there are so many different uh, seat position variables, height, depth, angle or tilt of the of the seat that you have to be uh, conscientious of. Some people just get into their car and they just start driving and they don't know that they can actually do more with, with adjusting their seat or their mirrors or uh, the uh, tilt of the steering wheel. Um, you know, they just figure that's it. You know, I yeah. drive it that way. So and so, you're able to help fit the person better for their vehicle. Exactly. In ways they did not think about. Exactly. And the most important thing is that they're using all the safety features at, at their optimal uh, levels. Um, you know, again, mm-hmm. if they're uh, they're too close to their airbag, they're going to be hit with that uh, airbag. Uh, if they're not, uh, if they're having their um, steering wheel too uh, tilted up too high, uh, they may not be able to see over the steering wheel. Or if they're not high enough in their seat, they may not be able to see over their dash. So. And so the older they get, they also have to be cognizant of sight lines because their eyesight may be deteriorating some, you know, maybe not a lot, but enough that can affect how you can look at that mirror and, uh, and also use some of those split mirrors that may be concave. And, right. uh, or, or convex or splitting the both, too. Right, right. Those composite mirrors are great, but sometimes they can be a bit confusing. Uh, and then you also have maybe yeah, the you're lane. looking in the right spot. Right, right. Then you have the lane hazard warnings uh, part of the, of the composite mirror, which – uh, you know, maybe kind of intimidating to some drivers. I mean, yes, it does keep you from drifting into that uh, lane over, but um, it may also um, be um, be a little intimidating. So yeah, but when they redo a highway, they haven't put the stripes back down there. Yes, yeah. <laughs> you know, and and uh, you know that's we, you know the cities have an overlay program that runs every summer. Right. Oh, so just on I twenty five out here. You're going to be getting that. <laughs> Those lane warnings, uh, you know, some of the more getting people more used to those more autonomous features, they're going to be handy. But I think people are going to be, uh, again, a little, maybe a little skittish of them until they you know, get fully used to them. But in this 20 minutes, you walk them through 
everything pertinent for their particular vehicle that's going to help them drive there. Exactly, exactly. And then at the checkout station, that's where I step in, and I can walk around the car with a person, make sure, and, and this is where the, the training as an occupational therapist can really help me. If somebody's struggling to get in or out of their vehicle, you know, I can make some suggestions or adaptations. If I notice some dings or nicks on their car and say, hey, do you know, were you aware of this little ding or nick? Then that is a really a red flag to me that says, oh, you know what, maybe you should be further evaluated, but I'm not going to mm-hmm. say you need to take away your, you know, you can't you have to stop driving today. Yeah. Uh, you know, and in, um, and in fact, um, as Sylvia has mentioned, we want to keep people driving and out on the road, but when it becomes an unsafe situation and we see those red flag issues, um, you know, dings or that sort of thing, then we're going to recommend in our, our checkout, um, kit, uh, you know, hey, here's a list of driving evaluation programs you may want to consider, or hey, here's an adaptation that will help you get your legs in and out of the car more easily, or uh, here's a way to uh, boost your seat height up a little bit. Sure. So, Sylvia, you have these car fit events. Yes. How often do you have them? Are they free? How many places? Are they all across the state or are they just across the metro area? Tell us about how people can get involved and at least go have themselves better fitted for their vehicle. Well, I'm glad you asked about that. We are offering several car fit events this summer. Yes, they are free, and they are only 20 minutes, and it's well worth your time. We work with some incredible community partners, Cook Park, Aurora Center for Active Adults, Heather Gardens, and other partners Mm -hmm. to host these events for us. And so I would like for people to call my office if they are interested in in one of our events, and we will certainly sign you up. And I can tell you a couple of ways that you can sign up uh, in the Denver metro area. One way is uh, by calling my office, 303-991-5740. And say that you want to uh, participate in CarFit, and we'll hook okay. you up. You can go on the CarFit uh, website, www.carfit.org. It gives you the information, and then it will direct you to the CarFit in your area. Okay. okay. www.carfit.org. And, 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 and you have some of these events, not only around the metro area, but you have them in Fort Collins and Colorado Springs and Pueblo. As well, all over the state under the CDOT initiative, we uh, we are conducting carpet events throughout the state on a regular basis, but primarily in the summer when the weather is a little better. Uh-huh. Well, well, let let's let's get into the family circus a little bit here. Can um, uh, can I, as a son, call for a carpet for my dad? I would. Or do you want them to, to make the phone call so that they can be more cognizant of their driving? You know, usually it's a great thing when the family comes in. Uh, that way, uh, as uh, dad is doing the uh, evaluation, then the daughter or son can talk about their concerns and vice versa. Sometimes, you know, it's – and I've seen people come in in teams, you know, that mom and uh, and dad and the uh, kids are there together and uh, everybody goes through car fit. Uh, sometimes it's the husband and the wife that come in and do a car fit together and so yeah. – it it really is uh, it, it's a touchy issue, but it is something that I think uh, you know if uh, if your loved one if you're concerned about your loved one you're going to come with them and you're going to you're going to support them in that uh, evaluation or that uh, that assessment. Well, the reason why I brought that up because Sylvia had said before when you have to talk to them talk to them about giving the keys up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Maybe before you get to that point, you got to take them to car fit, and they may not like that, but right, right. Eh, going to help you drive a little longer. You Could know. extend that safe uh, safe driving time, yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, f- more information on the road program itself, you have a website for that too? We don't have a website, but we do have a, uh, a Facebook page. And the Facebook page is uh, www.facebook.com mm-hmm. backslash road program. And you are available to speak with other groups and church groups and organizations and uh, about this to give it some more awareness so that those people that are saying, oh, that doesn't that isn't me. I'm, I'm in good shape right now and I'm 73, but I've, I've been driving for 50 years, so I'm cool. But you're available to talk to those groups and kind of raise the awareness. Not only am I, I available, I like to do that. So if anyone would like for me to come out to make a presentation on the keys to driving longer and safer, please give us a call. Again, 303-991-5740. 
On this edition, the focus has been keeping older adult drivers safe on the road. With Sylvia Cordy, who leads the ROAD Road Program for the Colorado Department of Transportation, and Ray Erickson, Car Fit Event Coordinator and Occupational Therapy Practitioner of Porter Adventist Hospital. We thank them both for being our guests again on this edition. You can locate the next Car Fit event online at CarFit C A R F I T dot org. And you can learn more about the road program and CarFit as well by calling 303-991-5740. That's 303-991-5740. I'm Adam Morgan. Do keep in touch. Stay on your game. And we thank you for sharing a few moments of your weekend with us. Now, we continue with Mile High Magazine. Here's your host, Melissa Moore. I'm Melissa Moore. Thank you so much for being here on this Sunday for Mile High Magazine. So PTSD Awareness Day is coming up this next week, June 27th. So I have with me today Camille Harding, who's the Division Director of the Community Behavioral Health with the State of Colorado. Is that right? That is right. That's a big title to remember. (laughs) It is. (laughs) Well, thank you for being here. I know mental health issues are kind of at the forefront of all of our minds right now. So many stories in the news. PTSD, I think a lot of times we hear it as it relates to people in the military who come back. Correct. But it's not just them that suffer with it. Explain what exactly is PTSD. Sure. So PTSD is post-traumatic stress disorder. And so it's really thought of as a constellation of symptoms where someone might avoid certain events or things that remind them of a particular trauma. It interferes with your day-to-day functioning oftentimes. So it can impact your relationships. Symptoms of depression might uh, be present, symptoms of anxiety, so fear, helplessness, mm-hmm. re-experiencing, um, difficulty sleeping, uh, easily triggered by loud noises or other triggers that might remind you of a particular event. So it's a constellation of a, of a variety of symptoms that, that interfere with your ability to do your na- normal day-to-day activities, mm-hmm. right? And what brings about PTSD? Yeah, so uh, I like to think of PTSD as sort of two separate ways that that develops. So, uh, right, if we take the example of veterans, right? Mm-hmm. So someone might experience an event that is traumatic. So uh, oftentimes it's an it's intrusive event. There's a sense of helplessness and fear and terror associated with it. Um, so things that you would imagine someone that's in the military probably has experienced or law enforcement or first mm-hmm. responders of any sort. Sure. Um, but then there's also um, developmental trauma, right? So you, we think of that more as sort of prolonged um, high degrees of stress okay. growing up in environments where there's lots of violence or um, inadequate food supply or okay. homelessness uh, or just your caregivers not present and mm-hmm. available to you um, or separation from your caregivers, okay. right? Okay. Um, so you don't have that ability to develop all those nice neural pathways that develop in, in infancy across the lifespan um, because you're constantly in a high state of stress. And so you'll see PTSD symptoms develop in kiddos that have lots of stressors in their environment or in their family systems. So even children can have PTSD. Yes. The younger you are, more long-term effects that we see Okay, with developmental trauma. Okay. So what are some of the symptoms, whether it be children, I don't know if the symptoms are different for them yeah. than adults, but what should people be looking out for? Yeah. So uh, if you think about kiddos, the stuff that you would see in young children would be um, behavioral issues, oftentimes difficulty soothing and calming themselves, mm-hmm. right? Um, and right, we know that kids have tantrums, right? Like that's just sure. what they do. Um, but it's really that prolonged, pervasive inability to soothe and calm themselves. Or you'll see the reverse, right? Like you'll see kiddos that don't have those responses and you would expect to see that mm-hmm. in young kids. And so you'll see that in the younger you are, uh, they sort of what we call dissociate. So you'll see them sort of float out and be vacant and not present. Um, and you to expect some sort of a reaction from something. And, okay. and sometimes they just... Um, stop reacting um, because of the stress or the traumatic event that happened in their lives. Yeah. Okay. And then what are the symptoms for adults for PTSD? And so the symptoms that you would see show up are it starts to interfere with your day-to-day functioning. It disrupts your sleep. It disrupts your eating habits. Um, You might withdraw from relationships, have intrusive thoughts where you feel like you're re-experiencing what happened to you uh, because of some environmental Mm -hmm. trigger. Okay. Um, It could be a smell. Often it's a smell. 
um, nightmares. Those types of symptoms are what you would see in someone that's that has PTSD. And you had mentioned a few minutes ago anxiety. What kind of role does that play in with PTSD? Post-traumatic stress disorder is kind of in the category of anxiety. Um, and so it's really that hyper arousal, hyper vigilance. Um, I kind of think about it as you're pretty tuned up and, and the little things sort of get to you more easily than another person and um, excessive worry or, or fear like that's going to happen to me again. So if you take the example of like a, a car accident, there's fear getting into the car and you have a lot of anxiety about driving, or the potential for something that that may have occurred in the past happening to you again. So tell me this. So we're talking about if you're just joining us, I'm talking to Camille Harding, who's the division director of the Community Behavioral Health with the state of Colorado. Coming up this week, it is PTSD Awareness Day. That is June 27th. And obviously, this is something I think we're all learning about as mental health is on the forefront of our minds, thinking about PTSD affecting not just our veterans, but children, adults, anybody who's suffered through, I guess, extreme stress and trauma? Does it need to be, it could just be one event. It could be multiple events that trigger it. So what can we do or is there anything we can do to prevent PTSD from happening in our lives? Really the key sort of factor, especially in young children, is having positive uh, relationships with adults. Having a caregiver, say a teacher, a coach, uh, any family member that was sort of that resource to you um, is really one of those those things that we know insulate kiddos and helps them be less likely to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. And then the same goes for adults. We know that the camaraderie and being with other veterans, if you've just returned from a deployment, is one of those things that's an insulator as well and helps Mm. sort of prevent the likelihood that you'll develop uh, symptoms. But even if you have symptoms, it's easier to talk with someone that that maybe knows what Mm -hmm. that's like. So that's sort of your primary Thing is making sure that you have those connections. And, and I think one of the, the challenges with post-traumatic stress disorder is that you're less likely to reach out, right? Uh, you're less likely to say, I'm not feeling great. Um, I had this thing occur for me. And uh, so it starts to isolate you. And so being able to reach out for help, access your, your relationships, your social supports, your friendships, um, all of those are key things that help support someone. Okay. Right. And, and then there's all your professional sort of services. So um, things like therapy, uh, there's lots of nice ways that you can get um, clinicians that have lots of training in treating someone with post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, And so finding a therapist that that that's their expertise and they have lots of uh, experience under their belt treating individuals with trauma Mm -hmm. um, can be really helpful. Okay. Um, Medication. So talking to your, your primary care doc is often sort of the best way to get into services if you if you feel like you need them and those sort of regular things that normally work for you are not working any longer. Mm-hmm. Right? That's what I was going to ask you. So how does someone know? Because I think most of us in life have crud happen. Yep. You know, <laughs> how does somebody know when what they've had happen in life has led to PTSD and they need to get help? Yeah. So not everyone that has something bad or negative uh, happen to them is going to develop post-traumatic stress disorder, right? Um, sometimes it's just a stressful event and you may want to seek professional help for, for that because that that's what you do and that's helpful to you. And some people may have full-blown PTSD and have all the symptoms and that's not where they would find themselves is, is doing traditional psychotherapy, right? So it's it's really a very personal decision about whether or not someone wants to seek professional help. But but it is key to develop those those relationships get support. And if you start feeling like you're going to hurt yourself or someone else, um, there's our Colorado Crisis Services line, which is a 1-800 number that the state operates and it's staffed by both individuals with lived experience. So individuals that may have had historical issues with depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, substance use. And that phone number is 844 844- Four nine three eight two five five. So you can find that on our website, which is coloradocrisisservices.org. So that's sort of a way that you can get some day-to-day support without mm-hmm. having to go to formal treatment with a therapist. But they can also make connections to a therapist if someone's looking for that. And that's a great phone number to have. Uh, tell me again, as far as what does a treatment for PTSD look like? You mentioned mm-hmm. therapy and you mentioned medication. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, it can look... a variety of different ways, and there's lots of different modalities that clinicians use. Um, Oftentimes, it's talking um, and developing skills to calm 
uh, your regulatory system, right? So you start to talk about a particular event and you start to physiologically feel like nauseous or you get a headache or you start to shake or tremble, Mm -hmm. right? Those are symptoms that you know you're getting pretty agitated having to relive or talk about the, the event that occurred to you. And so it's really being able to start developing skills to manage those those symptoms and be able to calm yourself and regulate yourself and, and be able to separate and say, you know what, this isn't happening to me right now. It happened in the past. It is in the past. It's not happening right this very moment. And I think that's sort of the hallmark of, of what you see in someone with PTSD. And that's exactly what I was going to ask you is how does someone know if they're suffering with PTSD versus having a bad day or just having an anxious moment? Like mm-hmm. what differentiates that? Yeah. So, so it's pervasive and you'll see it across a variety of environments, right? So you can have a bad day. We all have bad days where you're just irritable, you're, you're short-fused, you're uh, not at your best. Um, and usually you're able to go to sleep, you wake up the next morning and you're sort of able to put that day in perspective and go, okay, that was a bad day. And I know all the things that help me manage when I don't feel good. So right? Like I listen to music or I drink coffee, right? Like I'm talking about myself <laughs> or, right? You do right. things that are calming and soothing to you. That whole self-soothing to, piece you were talking about. Yeah. And then you're able to sort of get back on track and you're good. Um, it's when that starts to happen day after day and you're not able to make it through a day and you feel like you're not managing well and you're you're irritable. It's affecting your relationships. You're, it's affecting your sleep. It's affecting your you're eating, you're either gaining or losing weight, or Mm -hmm. you're just not responding to your family in the way that you want to. Um, It's starting to interfere with your your partnerships, your relationships. That's probably a good time to take a step back and reassess and go, okay, what what Mm -hmm. do I need to do to plan in place to help mitigate some of this stuff? How many people are affected by PTSD? You know, I think our estimates, uh, if you look at national estimates, about uh, seven or eight of every 100 people have probably experienced a traumatic event of some sort. Um, there's been lots of research on something that's called the ACEs study. So it's adverse childhood experiences. Um, and it actually, Kaiser started it, oh, I want to say 30, 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's now we have a pretty big body of research that the more adverse childhood experiences that an individual has makes them more likely to have long-term implications for their their health, right? So more likely to develop a substance use disorder, more likely to develop diabetes or heart conditions. So physical conditions Physiological, too. yep. yep. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, so it's obviously a big mental health problem, yeah. not just around the country, but probably I would say here in Colorado as well. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that I, I think in the probably the last 15 years, the, the body of research that's coming out about um, the impact of trauma or Mm -hmm. traumatic events on kids and families and caregivers of those children has long-term implications for both just at from a public health standpoint right um as well as our individual individuals seeking mental health treatment what resources does the state of colorado have to help individuals here with ptsd i mean they're listening you know someone's listening to us talk right now they're like gosh, I feel like that's me or that's my child or that's someone I know. And I know we gave out the 800 number a little, a few minutes ago. We can do that again as well. But what other resources does the state offer? Yeah. So, so the state funds lots of different programs kind of across that lifespan. Um, and so we fund substance use treatment programs. Then lots of those programs have a component of trauma and treating trauma built into their curriculum. Um, and then we fund uh, local community mental health centers. So um, there's 17 community mental health centers around the state that have different programs that treat all ages. And so in across the state, there, I would reach out to your local community mental health center. Um, and we have a list of resources on our state website um, where you can go in and put your zip code and search for a provider. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Okay. And give me that phone number and the website again. So if you have been suffering through PTSD, you know somebody who has, has and you're not sure where to start, the phone number is a good place to start. Yep. Yep. So it's the Colorado Crisis Hotline and it's 844-493-8255, uh, which is a hard number to remember. At, to remember. Um, but if you text TALK to 38255 um, or Google the Colorado org. 
there's the chat function, there's a text function, and there's also the phone number that you can call um, to access professionals trained in um, crisis intervention. Um, and they also function as a referral. So okay. if you're looking for right just resources, they can get you connected with a provider in your community. Okay. Um, and then there's also the state website, which if you just go to Colorado Department of Human Services, Office of Behavioral Health, there's links for finding a provider. Well, thank you so much, Camille Harding, the Division Director of the Community Behavioral Health with the State of Colorado, here talking about PTSD, PTSD Awareness Day, by the way, coming up here June 27th. Thank you for being with me. Yeah, I appreciate it. This is Melissa Moore. Thank you for joining me on this Sunday. I sure appreciate it. It's Mile High Magazine. You have been listening to Mile High Magazine. A look at the issues in people shaping Colorado. Presented by the Public Affairs Department of Bonneville, Denver. If you have a suggestion for a future program or a question, please send an email to publicaffairs at bonneville.com. Thanks for listening to Mile High Magazine.